Hey, everybody. Welcome to Parenting Impossible, the special needs survival podcast. I'm your host, Annette Hines, and I'm so happy you're here with us. If you're just joining for the first time, I am a special needs mom, a special needs attorney, and a best-selling author. So please grab your coffee, and if you're like me, you might be listening in your car. I spent a lot of time in the car in my day. And please join us for some important discussions to help you thrive in this complex special needs world. Each week, we're going to chat with parents and experts, and sometimes parents who are experts, to offer compassionate advice for all stages of your life. These are the conversations you would have with your best friend if your best friend was an expert like me. Let's go. Welcome back, podcast fans. I'm your host, Annette Hines, and this is Parenting Impossible, the special needs survival podcast. I am so glad you're here with me today. Thank you so much for joining. Thanks for coming back if you have listened to this podcast before. And if you have not, then welcome, welcome. So I'm in the middle of chaos right now. I don't know if you can hear that in the background, but there is a lot of construction going on at our building. We are doing some renovating and um, it got started pretty late. I actually thought we were going to be almost done by now and we just started yesterday. So it feels a little bit like we're in organized chaos. Let's put it that way. Um, it's exciting to see change, but in order to get to that change, you have to rip everything out and start over. So essentially what they're doing is they're taking one of the floors here down to the studs. And it just reminded me so much of my life. It was such a metaphor for me yesterday as I was walking through, watching them rip out sinks and rip out paneling and rugs and just, you know, wires and all kinds of stuff. And first of all, these folks are just the best, most cheerful, very respectful, wonderful to work with people. I am so excited. Thank you, Key Construction. You have been amazing in following along with me on this journey. But also you know, as I'm wandering through this floor that was once one thing and is in the middle of this change, this metamorphosis to something different, something that I had a vision for and I planned out and it's been quite a ways getting here. Still don't know what it's going to look like completely when we're done because Absolutely, we could have a change order, right? You know what a change order is? If you've ever hired a contractor or any kind of person to work on your home or even in your business, I've had change orders with my marketing plan and, and so forth. It's when you try something and you get partway down a path and you're midstream or you know, you're at the beginning or almost to the end, wherever, but you're somewhere in process. And you recognize that it's not turning out exactly as you wanted, or that your vision has changed now based on what you're seeing and what you're experiencing. So as a person who, you know, 
is a caregiver for uh, a number of folks with disabling conditions, that happens a lot in our experience. We'll try something. It's not a perfect fit. We'll make some adjustments. We'll adapt. We'll be flexible. We'll set a new goal. And we'll just enter into that change order. And, you know, that's not a bad way to think about it. I started to say to myself as I'm wandering around this almost down to the studs, empty floor, life is full of change orders and it's okay to change your mind. It's okay to use that skill that you have of being flexible to adapt midstream or at the end, or even in the very beginning, as you find things that need to be changed, as you find things that you need to adapt to. It was a wonderful experience to watch that, watch that happen. And I can't wait to see what comes next. Also, this was you know, a rough weekend for me. Uh, Mother's Day just passed and I needed to stay off social for a couple of days before and, and a couple of days after. And I did that for my own health and well-being. It's very hard for me sometimes to look at just the amazing, happy stories out there that people put out on social. Um, you know, you don't see a lot of, I'm missing my baby today. Um, you know, my child doesn't speak to me. <laughs> my child is institutionalized, anything like that over Mother's Day. And I think people post it, but I think that the social media gurus out there keep us from seeing it. They don't want negative posts trending. They don't want to see people's pain. They don't want to promote it. And they have a lot of say, I know they in quotations, have a lot of say over what we see in our newsfeed and, you know, what comes up um, for posts and whose stories get promoted to us. It's a weird algorithm. I don't even begin to pretend to understand it, but I know it's out there because I've definitely you know, checked and said, hey, I haven't heard from so-and-so in a while and come to find out they've been posting up a storm. They're in my group. I'm connected to them in whatever medium we're talking about, but their stuff hasn't been pushed out to me. Why? Why? You know, it's hard to know. It's hard to know why the algorithms are the way that they are, but I absolutely know in my gut that those negative posts, those sad and unhappy posts, they're not getting pushed out there. They're just not. So I stayed off social. Um, I did great things this weekend. Saw my own mom, talked to my daughter who's not here. Uh, but I still, you know, have a moment. So then yesterday I see a little yellow butterfly it's Elizabeth and she's reminding me and just like telling me, you know what, mom, it's okay. You're okay. Oh, I love those reminders. I'm so glad 
that I get them. I'm so glad I'm open to them. I'm glad that she's with me. And I posted one of my Facebook memories from three years ago, and it was a post of a card that she had given me. So sweet. Check it out on Facebook if you if you haven't seen it yet. And it just reminded me that, you know, besides this whole idea of change orders, right, I'm being flexible. I'm on a different path than I expected to be on. But I, I just had this emotion well up in me um, and I wanted to just be grateful. And, and I said out loud as I'm walking along, God bless the broken road that led me here. And I do bless it. I am blessed. Sometimes it's hard, it's painful, but I am blessed. I'm so lucky that I get to do all the things that I get to do. And I do them in Elizabeth's name, in memory of her, and in memory of the love that we shared as a family that still exists and binds us. So I had the joy of interviewing Rachel Bailey, who is just such a change agent. I, I love, love her and I love her, all of her um, materials and all of her uh, communications and, and, and the things that she's doing in honor of Mother's Day. Had a lovely conversation with her about raising children with big emotions. And that definitely pops up in the disability community. Of course, your child may have big emotions and may not have a disability, but certainly that pops up in the disability community. Hopefully you're not hearing all that construction going on below me, <laughs> but if you do, apologize in advance for that. So Rachel and I had a great discussion about um, a lot of her posts and her um, the information that she puts out. And I encourage you so much to go to www.rachel-bailey.com. And that's B-A-I-L-E-Y. We'll have all of the communications and all of the, um, all of the contact information in our show notes. Essentially, She's been, uh, she's a psychologist and she's been working on this area of raising children with big emotions and how that shows up in their life and in yours. And just loved this conversation. Hope you enjoy it too. Hope you all had a happy, healthy, and wonderful Mother's Day weekend. And here we go. Okay. Welcome back, podcast fans. I'm your host, Annette Hines, and this is Parenting Impossible, the special needs survival podcast. And today, my guest is Rachel Bailey, and we are going to be talking about some topics of parenting impossible children. No, mm -hmm. not really impossible, but some great parenting strategies. And Rachel, welcome. I wish I had met you years ago when my kids were younger because I could have used somebody like you. Oh, well, thank you for having me here. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. So um, I told you before we started our recording that I have a whole page of notes and a whole bunch of things that I want to get to, but I always like for you to introduce yourself a bit to our audience and just tell people a little bit about why this idea of parenting kids 
with big emotions, you know, is your, is, is your cup of tea. It's your little niche. So how did you end up in that space? Yeah. So it was so not planned in any way. In fact, I didn't even know if I was going to be a parent. I wasn't someone who dreamt of having kids. I was actually in graduate school studying to be a neuropsychologist. That was my goal, but I got pregnant along the way. So I never ended up becoming a neuropsychologist, but what I did do when I um, sort of left the, the, graduate school and that piece of it was that I was a therapist uh, for kids and for teens and for some adults. And what I realized pretty quickly into my journey as a therapist was that if I worked with parents, I could actually have a bigger impact on the entire home. So I, I started working with parents about 13 years ago. There weren't very many like parenting coaches at the time. Yeah. Um, and I worked with parents really mostly on discipline and self-esteem and anxiety But then I had my own kids and they were both kids with big emotions. I am someone with big emotions. And I found that the families I really um, loved working with the most were those with children with big emotions. So I narrowed into that, although I still do talk about, you know, discipline and helping children, you know, be responsible. But really, I'm working with parents of kids who are who have, you know, strong willed personalities or who are anxious or maybe sensitive to criticism, things like that. So the kids were really big, deep feelers. Yeah. Well, I actually really loved your episode on um, the, when big emotions aren't loud. Yes. So, um, because, you know, when I thought about big emotions and, and I thought, okay, so we're talking about kids who yell, kids with tantrums, kids who are, you know, kind of over the top all the mm-hmm. time. But then I, I was listening to some of your episodes. I love Rachel's podcast, by oh. the way. You guys really have to check it out. It's awesome. Thank you. Um, it just really gets right to the heart of the matter. And every single episode has some great tips in there. So I, I can see why you have five-star ratings because <laughs> everybody's loving it. So this episode really spoke to me because I have an ink anxious child who Mm -hmm. is 21 now, but still anxious. Mm -hmm. Right. And so for her, these emotions show up differently. And I was so excited that you got that and that you were talking about that in your podcast. So um, talk a little bit about big emotions that aren't loud, because this is fantastic, especially for the disability community. Yeah, absolutely. And people do assume that sort of big feelers are always turning their feelings out but a lot of them turn them in. So symptoms of a big feeling child who isn't loud, it may be anxiety where they're just holding all their feelings in and they worry a lot, but it's not even just worry. Sometimes they're avoiding things or sometimes they're just hesitant to, to begin things. But also kids with big feelings who aren't loud could be just really sensitive to criticism. You know, you give one critique and they melt down or they shut down. It could be a child also who is, gets really upset, like if someone gets hurt or if an animal gets hurt. So they're not always loud with their emotions. They still are just feeling deeply. They're just feeling deeply and often holding it inside. And it's harder to spot that sometimes, but just as important to support these big feeling kids. Yeah. So cool. Um, Definitely the ones who are quiet Mm -hmm. can sometimes get forgotten or not get addressed in the classroom, for example, but even at home too. Absolutely. Cause they're not rocking the boat. So we kind of assume everything's everything's okay. And it's interesting that you said that because often kids with anxiety or who are sensitive, they become pleasers trying to make everyone else happy, trying to avoid conflict. 
So they are good, quote unquote, good. They're well-behaved, but they have all these feelings inside that they're just holding in. And we really need to be aware of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I know that my daughter would go a long ways with the quiet stuff, but then would have a complete meltdown every once in a while. And that would be huge and surprising. And also almost, you, you almost couldn't like, bring her back from the edge. I believe that. And I always wished that I could recognize the symptoms because I never quite sort of got there. And that's why I would have loved to work with somebody like you when my kids were younger. Yeah. Sometimes it's hard. And here's the thing is that she may not have even realized it was going on. That's what makes it even harder. So we're there, we're present parents and we say, Hey, come talk to me, but they don't even necessarily know. So sometimes it can be hard to spot. Yep. Right, right. So you talked um, quite a bit, well, on your website, which mm-hmm. is fantastic, this idea of going from band-aid parenting mm-hmm. to long game parenting. And that's what your podcast is called, Long Game par- Parenting. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Talk to us yeah. about that. So basically, um, when I work with parents, when they first come to me, they're using what I call band-aid strategies. These are strategies that are like a band-aid, but they don't really last. The impact doesn't last. And what I really want is to empower kids and adults so that they see long-lasting results. So it's not just, how do I get my child to stop tantruming in the moment? Or how do I get my child to stop being anxious in the moment? It's really, how do I foster resilience? How do I foster internal motivation? So it's not the quick fix. Like, let's get them to be quiet right now. It's right. more about how do we really foster these um, this confidence or this, this trust in oneself that we can take with us? Because you know what, especially for big emotion people, and I'm one of them, I'm, I'm a highly sensitive person. We do really need to be resilient in order to handle the fact that we're, the world is hard. It's a really hard yeah. place to be. So long game parenting strategies, that's basically what I teach. Our long game parenting strategies are really the strategies that have the long lasting results. And you talk about your three pillars. Mm-hmm. So that was really cool too. And um, I want to kind of walk through our audience, your three pillars. By the way, audience, Rachel has a free course. She's got a ton of free information. You've just got to check it out. Mm-hmm. It's it's really good stuff. She's she's there for us, for sure. Definitely. Because so, I'm going through it. I'm a big emotion person raising two big emotion kids, my poor husband, right? Because he has the three of us around. But yes, I'm oh bringing no. it with everybody for sure. And do you find that it's more prevalent in boys or girls or is it just everyone? Yeah, it's. I wouldn't say it's more prevalent in boys or girls. Uh, I think it's more prevalent than we realize. When I start to explain what big emotions are, um, in mm-hmm. fact, when I kind of decided to narrow, someone said to me, are you sure you want to narrow that much? And I said, Almost every family has at least one big feeler and many families have multiple. I would say, I mean, this isn't scientifically backed, but like 75% of families have a big feeling person, at least one. So it's very common. And no, I find that it's definitely boys and girls for sure. Oh, cool. Okay. Mm -hmm. So your three pillars Mm -hmm. and, and your goal is to get parents to parent with confidence. You talk about that a lot. I do. But also you just mentioned instilling confidence in children as well Mm -hmm. so that they can be resilient. Yeah. So I I guess we don't really think about that as much, you know, like how do we raise confident children? That's a very cool idea. Yeah. And the way I, when I say confidence, what I actually mean, and this very much relates to big emotion children is I don't think confidence comes from being good at things. 
I think confidence comes from being able to handle discomfort and being able to handle, like as a parent, confidence comes from, okay, my child is melting down or my child is anxious or they're sensitive or they're strong-willed and this is uncomfortable and I can handle it because band-aid parenting is basically my child is being strong-willed. I ask them to go take a bath and they say no. Band-aid parenting is, okay, how can I make them go take their bath right now? Versus long game parenting, which is, hey, what's going on for my child that makes them not want to take a bath? And I'm not going to get triggered by that. I'm really going to understand that this is a sign that there's something happening for my child. I can handle it because when I can handle it, I can get them out of what I call yuck. I can get them out of this place of yuck, and then they're going to do what they're (laughs) supposed to do. So confidence really comes from, I'm not getting triggered by my child. I can handle their discomfort. I can handle my discomfort and don't go for those short wins. Like I'm going to make you take your bath right now by taking away all of your devices and toys. It's really about being able to handle that conflict and the big emotions that arise in the home. So I hope that makes sense. Yeah. And, you know, it's a little different for kids with disabilities Mm -hmm. because the strategies sometimes are different for them. Mm -hmm. And we need to be flexible and adjust. And certainly you talk about that as well. Yes. So your first pillar was matched intensity. Yes. You you were just talking about don't get triggered. Mm -hmm. And this is what that's about. So it is. So the first part of um, the long game program that I teach and the long game method that I teach is really about supporting us as parents. So I'll tell you about that. And then I'll tell you what matched intensity is. Actually, let me start with matched intensity. So basically there's a misconception that when a child is melting down, we need to stay calm. That if a child is melting down, we should say, it's going to be okay. We'll be fine. What happens when a child is melting down or even when they're anxious and quiet, it's not even when it's loud, is that they are feeling really dysregulated. They're feeling like something bad has happened. And when we're calm, that doesn't actually calm them down. What it does, it makes them feel like we don't get it. So let's say a child is upset because, um, you know, let's say we, we, they're the shirt that they wanted is in the laundry and they get really upset instead of saying, we'll give you the shirt tomorrow. It's okay. What we want to do is match the intensity of what they're feeling. So saying, wow, you must've really wanted that shirt. Were you going to wear that tomorrow? So we're actually showing them that we get how strongly they feel something because if there's a disconnect between the energy in their body and our energy, they actually just get more upset. So again, matched intensity is about actually meeting them where they are, but we can't do that if we're dysregulated. So the first pillar of my program is teaching this matched intensity and figuring out what your child needs, like how much intensity do they actually need? Like if it's a volume button, how high do we turn it? And then also what do you need in order to be able to give that to them? So that's really the first pillar of my program. That's really hard for some parents because they're not comfortable with yelling and screaming and getting upset and you know they really do want to just stop it fix it and move on yeah (laughs) that's exactly why the first like quarter of my program or third of my program really is about how do we make sure we have what we need because there are really three reasons that parents can't handle there's there's simple reasons easy to remember that we get triggered number one is our past if we learn that big emotions are bad we're going to get triggered number two is our fear of the future If we are afraid that our children's big emotions will get in the way, then we're going to get triggered. And number three is our present, our current level of what I call yuck or how much kind of stress we have in our life. So if we think about our past, our present, and our future, those are our triggers. And that's what I work on with parents. Address Mm -hmm. your past, address your fear of the future, address your current level of stress, 
and you will feel so much more empowered to handle your child no matter what they're doing. And that's the beginning of the solution to more peace and predictability in the home. And getting rid of the yuck. And getting rid of the yuck. That's it. That's my whole goal. Let's address kids' yuck. Let's address our yuck. Let's, let's reduce the yuck in our homes. Yep. That's awesome. Yeah. Wow. And so then your second pillar? Elevated. So my second pillar is about, okay, once we've worked on us as parents, it's about helping kids um, cope and helping them be resilient. And I kind of... Um, go to all the myths that we've learned about. So one of the myths we've learned about with big emotion children is that we should just teach them coping skills, like take deep breaths and then remind them in the moment and then they'll use them. Well, anyone who's raising a child with big emotions knows that does not work. You've told your child a hundred times to take deep breaths. And in the moment when you say take deep breaths, they probably say, leave me alone, I hate deep breaths, they're stupid. It doesn't work. So we really have to understand what we can do to help children actually want to cope. So we teach them coping strategies, but we also have to increase their motivation and we can also make it less likely that they're going to get as upset to begin with. So those are sort of how I teach resilience. It's very different than what most parents have learned. It's not just teach them the skills. It's we have to motivate them. We have to figure out what motivates them. And then we also have to try to help them not get as triggered to begin with. And that makes it go better. Can you give an example Yes, I can give an example of any of this because this is what I teach in my program. Mm -hmm. So an example of um, they're not getting as upset to begin with, one of the things that kids with big emotions and adults with big emotions is missing um, is what we call flexible thinking skills. So kids with big emotions tend to imagine that things are going to go one way. Like I'm going to be able to finish watching this show. I'm going to be able to go to my friend's house this weekend, even if no one ever told them that. That's what, Or I'm going to be able to play with my sibling in this way. Like we're going to play this Mm -hmm. game and it's going to go this way. And when it doesn't go that way, their, their brain gets triggered. It's, it's a danger to them and they melt down or they, whatever they do, they become strong-willed or they become bossy. So what we need to teach them is to be more flexible, that when things don't go their way, it's actually okay. So we train them outside of the moment. By, we could, this is really fun. We could do flexible thinking games. So for example, um, one flexible thinking game is pick an object in your home, like a, a pencil, and you say to your child, what do you use a pencil for? Well, to draw. And then you say, let's come up with at least three other things that we could do with a pencil that have nothing to do with drawing. And you just make some games where they are practicing Mm -hmm. flexible thinking skills. And I have families do that for a few weeks to a month and then start to translate that to situations they face where they're not flexible. And that actually, it like strengthens the flexible thinking ability in their brain and it translates to situations and then they don't get as upset as much to begin with. So you don't have to use those coping skills to begin with. That is very cool. I like it. Okay. Your last pillar. So my last pillar is something that I think is really overlooked, which is bringing the rest of the family on board. So I feel like when we have at least one person in the family with big emotions, it affects everybody. It affects day-to-day life. It affects Um, You know, when we go on vacation because that child may be really upset and negative and melting down or being anxious or whatever their symptom is of big emotions. It also affects a lot of marriages, to be honest, because a lot of parents will disagree on how to respond to a big emotion child. Yeah. So, yeah. So a lot of what I do is getting parents on the same page when it comes to responding. So again, the third pillar is really about the family. How do we, and then the last piece is too with siblings How do we make sure, like you said, the quiet child isn't overlooked? Mm -hmm. So we really need to think about the marriage, 
the siblings, and how the family as a whole is affected. So again, pillar one is about the parent, pillar two is about the child, pillar three is about the family. And that's basically my long game method. Wow. How long does it take us to get good at all of this stuff? So it's it's funny that you ask that because I actually think I have people in my program much longer than they need than they need to actually see results. So uh, my program is twelve lessons, but it's a sixteen week program, so four months. But I would say by week six or seven, people are really starting to see results, and I think it's because I mean I've been doing this a long time, so I kind of did this strategically. But yeah. because we start with ourselves we start to feel more in control pretty quickly. We start right. to see results and then kids sense that. So by the time we get to them, they've already, the kids have already made changes because we've changed ourselves. So I would say six, seven weeks, parents are already starting. Like I do a four week check-in. I'm already starting to hear positive things. I do an eight week check-in and parents are like, wow, things have really changed. So my program is 16 weeks. Definitely by the end, people are like, all right, things are really good. And we're just kind of maintaining at this point. Wow. That's that's really great. Yeah. So I really wanted to, can you give me an example of, you know, one of your tougher families that needed to get connected and all on the same page? Yeah. I mean, I would say the dynamics where there's first um, spouses or co-parents. It's not always, you know, whoever it is that's parenting together. It's not always husband, wife or anything so traditional, but when co-parents are not on the same page and then we have a lot of conflicted siblings and usually those go hand in hand, honestly, when co-parents are not on the same page, we have a lot of sibling drama. So they'll come to me and there's just a lot of isolation in the family. So there's, you know, a conflict or something goes wrong. And then the family members will scatter to their rooms. They'll go on social media, they'll fight first, and then they'll scatter. I call that the fight Mm -hmm. and scatter. Mm -hmm. Um, So, or there'll just be a lot of explosive yelling and parents will often say, well, we want to get the family to connect, but every time we do, it's just a fight and an argument. And that's often, again, a symptom of parents, co-parents not being on the same page, a lot of sibling issues. So those are probably the most complicated for me because you're dealing with multiple relationships. But what I do is I just take it one step at a time. I just, that to me, it's just a journey and there's a path from A to B. And it's not always a linear, you know, there's going to be some diversions, but I just take one baby step at a time and really help parents see the success that they're having one step at a time. Mm -hmm. You just take the next step and the next step. So they may think it's complicated. To me, it's not too overwhelming at all. Do you ever ever have any situations where grandparents are in the middle and uh, make things very difficult? 100%. That's that's fairly common. And that is even more complicated, potentially. Uh, It just depends on the family. But because there's a generational difference in parenting and in child child rearing, for sure. So that, that can add an additional element, for sure. Yes. Yeah. And in the disability community, there can sometimes be a lack of understanding or appreciation for the complexity of the situation. A hundred percent. Yeah. Because, you know, there's the complexity of the situation and then there are the feelings about the complexity of the situation. So it's like complicated on top of complicated on top of, and then, you know, no one's, a lot of people are not getting enough what I call deposits. So then we have even more yuck on top of that. So yeah, it can get pretty complicated. Mm. But again, I tend to break it down. I think of what's the most urgent. I triage a lot. What's the most urgent need? 
And we see that success and then we're willing to take the next step and the next step. So to me, really, it's just baby steps. Yeah. Um, if it's okay with you, I want to just dig in a little bit on this idea of regulating yourself. Yes. Because I just really have... I struggle with that. I really do. Even, even my daughter's 21 and she still makes me crazy, you know? Um, Absolutely. So what are some, some like easy or just beginner tips for us as the audience listening to you? How can we get started on this path of regulating ourselves? Yeah. I'm going to say the first thing to do Um the first two things, because I'm going to give you a beginner high level. The first thing to do is to recognize your own, what I call yuck, recognize the stressors that are in your life. Mm. Because basically emotional regulation is about reducing the threat in your mind. If you are dysregulated, if you've lost your cool, if you're doing things you regret, that's a sign that your fight or flight response has kicked in. Because when we're not in fight or flight, we can access the values-based part of our brain So if we're not accessing that part of the brain, that means we're in fight or flight. And if we're struggling in our lives, if we have a lot of yuck in our lives, and and yuck is just a term I use to describe any type of discomfort. So if we have a lot of yuck in our lives, our brain will be on the constant, on constant lookout for any stressor, and it will assume anything is stressful. So if we have a lot of stress in our lives, and then our child does one thing, we're going to react very, very quickly. So high level regulation is to really be aware of your level of yuck. I have a simple exercise that I do with parents called a yuck dump, which is where a yuck dump is basically where, and this is the beginning of emotional regulation. You ask yourself one, two questions, well, three, sorry. Um, First is what's making life hard right now? What is making life hard right now? You dump it all out and you really need to externalize all of the yuck because if it's in your brain, you're going to be very reactive and you're going to be very you know, dysregulated often. So what is causing, what's making life hard right now? The next is what part of this is in my control? What about what is making life hard is in my control. And then I have parents take one of those things that's in their control. So maybe they came up with two or three or four things, one of them. And I say, what can you take action on? And what happens is when we have a lot of yuck in our lives, we start to take action. Our brain starts to see that there's less of a threat because we're taking action. So again, very high level emotional regulation is to recognize how much yuck is in our lives and how can we start to get it out of our brains so it's not inside so that we see everything as a threat and what can we start to take action on? So I do this exercise with my clients when they first come to me so they can start to see how they can get out of this place of dysregulation all the time. It's as you were talking and I was listening to you, I, I have this image pop into my head of when my children were little and I was single parenting and I had to get to work and I couldn't get the little one to put her shoes on. Yeah. And I'm freaking out because I'm going to be late again, you know, Mm -hmm. and I'm like, I'm always late to school Mm -hmm. and we're always late to work. And, you know, and I've got to, you know, do this thing and that thing. And it's just not, there's never enough time or energy or anything. And so that, that image just, memory really just popped into my head of just like, here I am yelling at a three-year-old who won't put her shoes on, you know? Yeah. Because yelling is a sign of a threat, any type of threat that we perceive. So that's a huge threat that you just described. You, you didn't know you were doing this necessarily, but what I listen for is does, does your brain sense a threat and your threats were huge. I'm going to be late. I'm always late. 
I'm getting her, I'm, I'm going to, you know, I'm not going to get her to school on time. That's threat after threat after threat. So we have to be very aware of what the threats are in our lives if we want to start regulating. And what I teach parents to do is, again, externalize some of those threats and then notice the ones that are still stuck inside and reduce the threat. That's when we can stay regulated. And when we're regulated, that's when our kids do better. Ooh, I tell you, you know, you're bringing up a lot of stuff for me. <laughs> for better or worse, right? Rachel, you're so good at your job. <laughs> oh, thank you. you know what? I'm not a good cook. I can't sing. I'm so bad at so much, but I, I do really feel like this is something I've got. I've got this one under control. That's awesome. What do you mean when you say to your audience, respect the feeling? Hmm. So here's the thing about feelings is that they are supposed to happen. There are scientific reasons we have feelings. Just think about it this way, that if we broke our leg and we didn't feel pain, we'd continue to walk on the leg and then bad things would happen. If we didn't feel the need to eat, we would get, we would starve. If we didn't feel like we had to go to the bathroom, we would, you know, obviously the toxins would build in our body. Our feelings serve a purpose. And so our body is wired to actually have feelings. It's not wired for us to ignore our feelings. It was right. created for us to respect them. Now, it doesn't yeah. mean we let those feelings control us, but we have to start by respecting them. And there was a metaphor that I love. This is not mine. This is from Brooke Castillo. She's amazing. She's a life coach. And she gave this metaphor that has helped me ever since I learned it. Because I tend to want to stuff my feelings. Yeah. She said, basically, think of your feelings like a beach ball. Um, and they're on water. So it's floating along. If you try to push down the beach ball, it'll just go, it'll go down, but pop right back up. But if you actually let the beach ball sit there, it'll float away. The more you push it down, the more it pops right back up, the more you just respect it and accept it and let it pass. It actually starts to float away. So that's really what it is about respecting the feelings from a scientific perspective, not even from like a woo woo perspective. You have to, because that's the way we're wired. Oh, very good. Okay. And so the last thing that I wanted to ask you about, because we're already out of time, this happens to me all the time. <laughs> so you were talking in your podcast, um, one of the episodes, I can't remember which one about not fixing or solving, Yes, but giving kids a base to solve their own problems, another tool in the tool chest for them. So can you talk to us a little bit about that? Because yes. as parents, we always want to fix, right? We just yes. want to fix and move on. I said that earlier in the podcast today. So how do we get into this frame of mind of yes. not fixing or solving? So um, the importance of not fixing and solving, it can't be understated because it is so important that, especially if you have an anxious child, which most kids with big emotions are also anxious, whether they turn that anxiety out or in. When you have an anxious child, the worst thing you can do for them is solve their problems. Because let's say they're worried about um, a test coming up and you give them this amazing study strategy and it works really well. And they study and they do so well in the test. They come home, they tell you they're excited, you high five. Basically, all you've taught them is that they need you to do better. Mm. So we cannot, we just enable our kids when we solve their problems. So what we want is for kids to solve their own because Remember I talked about dysregulation as seeing a threat. Well, if right. we teach kids to solve problems, they no longer see problems as a threat and they don't get triggered by them. So if they're in a situation where, oh my gosh, I'm going to be late, but they know how to solve problems, they don't get triggered. 
So teaching problem solving is also very similar to flexible thinking. Like I was saying before, you can start this with games, problem solving games. Like I used to do this and I'm not that creative or fun. I'm really not. But if you just like play this fun game with your kids where you're like, okay, let's come up with a problem. You're at the airport and you have to go to the bathroom, but your flight is being called. How many solutions can we come up with for this problem? So it's simply coming up with kind of a fun scenario. And my little hack for that, by the way, because I can come up with them really fast, is just pick a scene, pick a problem, and then say, how many scenarios can you come up with? And this can be really fun. Like you're on Mars and your, your ship is flying away and you need to get home. How many solutions can we come up with? That actually is fun for kids, even older kids, because I used to be a therapist for teens. So I know the resistance, even mm-hmm. teens eventually can join in with that because it's kind of fun. And again, you're flexing their problem solving skills so that when they face a problem, they can depend on themselves and trust themselves and they get less triggered when they happen. Okay. Now I'm starting to feel better about my parenting skills. Cause I actually used to play a game with my girls called anything can go in a pie. <laughs> oh, tell me and about so- that. If we were in like a long car ride, which, and we were always in the car going somewhere, it felt like the chauffeur for, you know, 15 years of my life. So we would play this game about, and they would try to stump me. Well, you know, can you put clams in a pie? I'm like, yes, you can have clam pie. Yeah. It wouldn't taste very good, but you could. So we would go through this. um, And we did this for years because pie is the perfect food. So we all love pie and we would dream up, you know, is there anything that can't go in a pie? So, I love that. Yeah. So it just taught, taught them to think about. Think outside the box. Right. Exactly. I love that. Yeah. And those are such important skills for kids, for confidence, for flexible. I mean, for flexible thinking, it's so important that they have those skills. So I love that. Okay. Audience, I'm feeling a little better about myself now. That's good. <laughs> You know what? Can I just say, I think that one of the things we all need to do is, and I ask parents this when they join my program, think about our parenting strengths. Because as parents, I think we stink. We always look at what I'm doing wrong. And I guarantee we all have many, many, many parenting strengths. Like the one you just mentioned, you probably have so many more. And I think we need to take the time to think about those. I love it. Thank you. Absolutely. So um, as we're winding down today, can you just give us some context of a place to get started. You know, we just need to get started on this journey and we need to work on and hone these skills. So where do we start? And audience, by the way, I'm going to have all of Rachel's uh, contact information in the show notes, but rachel-bailey.com is her website and it's fantastic. So I definitely recommend checking it out. Okay, so what do we do to get started? What's the number one or two things or three if they are three? Like what how do we take that first step? So what I would what I would say is first of all, try to think about does do you think your child has big feelings? Do they seem to be a child who um, you know loves hard but also has big reactions, even if they're not loud? So think about do you think you have a child with big feelings? And then the second question I'd ask yourself is, do you have a hard time with that and why? That's probably where I'd start. Again, I feel like it really starts with us because when our children are growing up, even as teenagers, they need to, they don't have great regulatory systems for emotions and they need to borrow it from us. So I would say, ask yourself, do you think you have a big feeler? If this is the topic you're interested in, how do you feel about it? And then how can you take care of yourself? 
because that's going to be necessary in order to help your child with big emotions, even to foster their resilience. Excellent. Thank you so much, Rachel. This was so great. I so appreciate you coming and I love the work that you're doing with families. Thank you. I would say the same to you. So thank you for having me here. Okay. Well, we are going to post all of the um, contact information for Rachel in our show notes. And please, if you have any thoughts about this episode, let me know. I'm happy to hear from you. Please message me. And um, if you've got questions for Rachel, I'll pass them along, or you can just go check her out on her social media. She's got a great Instagram page as well. So check that out too. All right. Well, have a great evening, guys. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. I just wanted to take a second to say how much I appreciate you taking the time to listen to these podcasts. I'm having a blast doing them, and I hope that you're finding the content to be what you were really hoping. If you are, please take a second to leave a rating and a review. It's so helpful in getting this content out to people who really need to hear it. Thank you so much.